Good morning, church. Uh, today, uh, we are covering a very long passage, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open because I got slides and they're 20 over and I don't want to add to them anymore. So um, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. If you're looking at your Bibles from your phones, I encourage you to also employ the do not disturb mode so that you would not be distracted. All right. Let us pray, shall we? Father, may we, we ask, O oh Lord, that you achieve the purposes of your word that is being sent forth today, that it will not return to you empty, but that it will return to you having achieved the purpose for which you are sending it forth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good news. Now, what do we know about good news? Well, here are some quotes on good news. Firstly, bad news travel fast, but good news, they take the scenic route. You know what that means, right? Yeah, if you have good news, you take time before you share it, but bad news, you quickly tweet it. Next, for most folks, no news is good news. But for the press, especially the Western press, good news is not news, because they like to report bad news. And then last, the good news does not make sense, any sense, unless you know what the bad news is first. And the bad news goes pretty deep. Now, today's sermon is entitled, Why We All Need the Gospel. The Gospel, also known as the Good News. And today I am picking up from where uh, we left off in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 15. If you recall verses 1 to 15, two weeks ago, uh, the Apostle Paul declared his eagerness to preach the Gospel, aka the Good News. And then Paul's self-introduction, he aims to convince the Roman Christians that the primary recipients of this letter, he aims to convince them to listen to the gospel that the apostle was going to preach to them. They must listen to the gospel. The gospel is a must. And why is the gospel necessary? Why is it indispensable? This gospel that declares uh, faith as being the only means for living righteously. Why is the gospel important? Well, the gospel important is because there is bad news. And today's passage from chapter 1, verses 16 to chapter 3 reports for us the bad news. And the bad news that goes really deep. And here is the bad news. Next slide. God's wrath and His judgment looms on all kinds of people, all kinds of people. So the bad news, my friends, according to Paul's gospel, is that God is angry. And because he's angry, his judgment looms. But what is making God angry? Well, mind you, God's anger is not the same kind of anger that, you know, territorial gods or spirits are, are believed to have. They are believed to get angry for little reasons and sometimes unknown reasons. That is why there is always a need to appease them. So offer these gods and spirits food, beer, or candies, so that in case they are angry, what happens is that they ang their anger will, will subside because of the offerings. And then it is believed that all will be well. But God's anger is so unlike the anger of the gods and the spirits of this world. God's anger is 
also very much unlike our anger. See our anger? Our anger is always built up by stressors, different stressors. You name it, rush hour traffic, your boss, your colleagues, ticket master. They make you angry. And our anger gets unleashed by our mood swings. Well, God's anger is not like that. His anger is not driven by stress or a bad hair day. His anger is not driven by, you know, waking up from the wrong side of the bed. God's anger is not temperamental. God's anger instead is stable and consistent. And so what is God angry at? God is constantly angry at sin. And so J.I. Packer says, God's wrath in the Bible is never, next slide, is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger is so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And so God's wrath and His judgment looms on all kinds of people. And when it comes to people, there are all sorts of people. And so we meet many kinds of people. Um, in fact, when one meets a kind that he does not like, he calls him, in Singapore colloquial, one kind. Right? Have you heard of that? You are one kind. The Apostle Paul, however, summarizes the many kinds of people into three here in this passage. Namely, you have the godless, the presumptively godly, and then the God-favored. And you shall meet the, the three kinds of people uh, Paul here uh, uh, talks about in today's passage. And then, so firstly, you have the godless. And so Paul tells us that the gospel is necessary because, slide, God's wrath is upon the godless. So chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so who are these godless people? Well, they are people who deep down inside, they know that God exists. But yet, in their ungodliness, they, uh, they suppress the truth that the Creator exists. And so Paul explains that the truth of God's existence is actually a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer because the truth is laid out plainly. So uh, verses 19 to 20 tells us, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so Paul says, God is invisible. Yes, but what God has made, creation, creation is visible. And the visible creation is blasting out a message. And what is that message? That God created all these. So Psalm 19, 19 verse 1 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So you just, all you need to do is just look at the sky, look at the sunrise, look at the sunset, look at the buck moon, you know, that showcased God's glory a few, week back, a few weeks back. Creation pours out inaudible speech. That's what Psalm 19 tells us. It's inaudible, and yet it is heard everywhere. I like the pun. It's inaudible, but then it is heard everywhere, Psalm 19 says. And the message that creation proclaims is this, that God who has eternal power, who possesses divine nature, made all these. The truth of God's existence is so plain and simple, people cannot claim ignorance because it requires active suppression of the truth in order to deny God. So have you heard of this? A father told his young son, he says, Son, listen, there is no God, and we are not going to believe that God exists. Understood? Yes, father, the boy replied. And then the boy continued and said, But dad, what if God finds out? <laughs> so the truth that God exists is plain and simple. Even a child knows it. But godless men and women, we are told in chapter 1, they suppress this truth. And so, rejecting God, they exchange the Creator for creatures. So they worship instead images that resembled mortal men, birds, and animals. So verses 22 to 23 tells us, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And so why are idol worshipers described as fools? Hmm? Well, the prophet Isaiah reports for us, he blogs for us, what's a day like in the life of an idolater? And he says in Isaiah chapter uh, 44, and let me read that for, for all of us, he cuts down cedars and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes, chop, 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 he takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god out of the same wood and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol. And then he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. And so why is the man who bows down before an idol a fool? Well, it's pretty obvious. He just called his own creation his own God. And because the godless reject God and dishonor him, like this idolater, it follows that they will also dishonor God's image bearers. 
And so the dishonoring of God's image bearers is seeing how the godless let loose their dishonorable passions with one another. Women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Uh, men, too, abandoning natural relations with women and committing shameless acts with fellow men. And so we see that when the godless reject and dishonor the Creator, it follows that they will reject the Creator's design and then dishonor fellow, dishonor men and women who are created in God's image. So the Creator's design for sex was for the intimate act to be enjoyed and celebrated in the holy union of marriage between a man and a woman. But for those who reject God and His design, they pervert the beauty of God's gift of sex. They make, it, they make a hack out of it in today's lingo. And so sex for the godless is for my pleasure. It is the way I wanted it with whomever I find delight. The dishonoring of one another, of God's image bearers, is limitless. So that's why you read in verse 29. They were filled with all manner, next slide, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Look at the list. All these can be summed up as the antithesis of God's moral will for man and woman. The antithesis of God's commandments on how to treat one another. Because, because when one dishonors God, next slide, when one dishonors God, rejects God, the Creator, what will happen is that he will reject his design and then he will also reject his moral will. You see that pattern when you read chapter 1. And so how does God respond to the godless? Chapter 1 tells us three times the phrase God gave them up. God gave them up is used to describe God's actions. So God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, verse 24. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verse 26. God gave them up to a debased mind, verse 28. God gave them up. God gave them up. And God's act of letting them continue in sin without restraints it gives us an insight into God's anger, which is that when the godless continue in sin with no clamping down, it does not mean that God is unaware or that God is oblivious to their sin. I mean, that was always the psalmist's cry to God, right? Complain to God, Lord, why don't you do something? Well, friends, God is not oblivious. No, He is not impervious. He is constantly and consistently angry at sin. And he acts by giving people over, giving them up over to their sins. 
And so why is the gospel a must? Why do we all need the gospel? Well, because there's bad news. The bad news that God's wrath is upon the godless. The godless who have sufficient knowledge of God to fear Him and yet reject and dishonor Him and so pervert His design and then trash His moral will. That's chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Paul continues to show that God's wrath awaits a second kind of people. Next slide. God's wrath awaits those who are presumptively godly. And so who are these people? Who are these people? Well, unlike the godless who have limited yet sufficient knowledge of God, this group of people have a better knowledge of God. They have an extra edge in that they have an extra knowledge of God. But their extra knowledge of God led them only to act as God's judges. And so what they did was that they judged and they condemned others and they never judged themselves. And so God's wrath awaits them. Verse, uh, one, verses 1 to 3, chapter 2, For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. Now, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the uh, presumptively godly assumes that by being police and judges for God, they uh, enjoy some sort of an immunity from God. You know, in my younger days, I used to uh, follow episodes of the TV series, Law and Order. How many of you remember that? You're revealing your age, huh? <laughs> Law and Order. And so I, I followed episodes of Law and Order. That is why for some time I had wanted to be a criminal lawyer. Now, I learned a term from watching Law and Order. It is the term called state witness. State witness. What's a state witness? Uh, a state witness. A state witness is somebody who's been charged of a crime, but then was offered immunity by the prosecution in exchange for testifying against his fellow criminals. In other words, state witnesses are bad guys who get off the hook. Why? They get off the hook for pointing to other bad guys. So I watch that episode and I say, wait, that's very unfair. So who is like the state witness here in chapter 2? It's these presumptively godly. They are like state witnesses. They are acting out on their own as divine witnesses, pointing and condemning others. And they presume that they would enjoy immunity from God's judgment. But God, He never made such an offer. Because unlike the state prosecutor, God is all-knowing. He has a hot mic on every one of us. Because unlike the state prosecutor, God is all-knowing. And he does not need the help of witnesses. Furthermore, God's judgment in the finality is righteous. It is going 
to be just. He will, verse 6 tells us, render to each one according to one's works. Not according to how many one accuses, to how many one judges. And so chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, next slide, tells us of God's judgment. To those who buy patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So Paul says to those who do evil, there will be tribulation and distress in the end. But to those who do good, glory, honor, and peace. So Paul tells us that God will reward eternal life. Listen carefully, yeah? God will reward eternal life to those who persistently do good. And they persistently do good for God's glory, for God's approval, and they desired lasting fellowship with Him. However, to those who reject God and do evil, God will give them His wrath. And so what's the bad news? The bad news is this. God's wrath awaits the presumptively godly. Why? Because they judge evildoers while doing evil themselves. Because they dismiss the purpose of God's forbearance on them, which is to move them to repentance. And so God's wrathful judgment awaits these people. And on the day it happens, Paul says, this judgment is happening, Paul says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so, friends, do you now catch what Paul is getting at when he says the Jew first and then the Greek or the Gentiles? When he says that, did you get the drift? Paul is insinuating that the Jews are the ones who are presuming to be godly because they are quick to condemn the Gentiles of their lawlessness. Number one, their acts of lawlessness. And number two, their lawless status. Because to the Jews, Gentiles, they are synonymous to lawlessness. But then Paul is going to refute that perception. Are Gentiles lawless? Are they? Both in their acts and in their status? Well, Paul tells them in chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now let me explain that. Are Gentiles lawless? Paul's answer, yes and no. This is when it can become confusing, okay? So bear with me. Yes and no. Are Gentiles lawless? Paul says yes and also no. Yes, the Gentiles who do not have the law, that means the law that God gave Israel through Moses, they are lawless, yes, because they do not have the law. But no, they are not without law at all because they have a law to themselves. And it is the one that is written on their hearts. And the proof 
is that they do what this law, which is written on their hearts, what this law requires of them. And you know, my friends, we who are Gentiles, I mean, all of us are Gentiles, aren't we? We who are Gentiles, we are living proofs of that, aren't we? Evidence, example. Not all of us know what the sixth commandment is. Anybody? But we all know that murder is wrong. And murder happens to be the sixth commandment. We all know that it is wrong to steal. We've known it long before we've discovered that it ranks eight on the list of the Ten Commandments. Do you know that it's on the Eighth Commandment? Because we just did Exodus and Deuteronomy. But long before we studied Exodus and Deuteronomy, you and I know that we should not steal because we have a law that is written in our hearts. And so we Gentiles do not have the law that was given to the Jews, and yet we have a law to ourselves, and then we by nature do what the law requires, even though we do not have that law, unlike the Jews. And that is why God's judgment is righteous. He will judge the Jews who have the law, and the Gentiles who do not have the law of the Jews, but have a law to themselves. And here's the bad news, according to Paul in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Why is that so? Because it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So yes, God's wrath awaits the presumptively godly. And now we know too that God's judgment looms even upon the Jews, those whom God favored. And you ask, why so? Paul already hinted at it. He says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I mean, who are the people known to be hearers of the law? Listening to the law religiously, being read. Certainly, it's not the Gentiles. It's not the Gentiles. Paul is alluding to the Jews who take pride in having the law handed down to them. They are the people who are instructed in the law from young. Possessing God's law, they are uh, instructors to the ignorant. They are wise teachers to the foolish. They are guides to the blind. They are a light to those in darkness. That is a Jew's portfolio. It's a very impressive portfolio. But Paul begins his searing indictment. Next slide. In verses 21 to 22, he tells them, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The hearers and teachers of the law are in danger 
of God's judgment. Why? Because they dishonor God by breaking the very law that they teach and preach. And in so doing, their actions blaspheme the name of God, as their history would always tell us again and again. And in warning the Jews that they are in danger of God's judgment, Paul now exposes their security flaw in their belief system. And what's that security flaw? You see, the Jews believe that having the law sets them apart from the lawless world. Having the law sets them apart from the lawless world and, and, and somehow exempts them from God's judgment. But Paul just showed them it's a flawed assumption. Why? Because God looks for doers of the law and not merely hearers. Secondly, the Jews took pride that circumcision guarantees them to be God's people. Paul says circumcision counts only if one obeys the law and that the circumcision that really matters in the end is not physical circumcision but spiritual. And so he says in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Paul says circumcision that counts is circumcision of the heart which is made possible only by God's Spirit. When He creates in us a new heart, when He creates a new heart in His people, people who will then gain approval from God and not from men. And so in saying all this, the question that Paul anticipates people would ask is, did Paul just lump the Jews and the Gentiles together? Did he just place them on the same level? Uh, because to the original hearers, especially to the Jews, uh, that sounded like it. And you know what's Paul's answer? Paul's answer is yes and no, again. Yes and no. Let's begin with his no. Paul says, no, the Jews are not on the same playing field as the Gentiles. Because Jews, they have far more advantage. And so we move now move to chapter 3, where Paul mentions one advantage. And then he gets, scholars say he gets distracted of it, and he will come back in chapters 8 or 9. So Paul mentions one, and he says, Of all the peoples of the world, the Jews were the custodians of Scripture. They were handed the oracles of God. They received them firsthand from God. And so with knowledge of God's revelation, the Jews are way ahead from the rest. And also in God's revelation to them, it was revealed to them that they are promised to be His people. And so is Paul now telling them that since God's judgment looms upon God's favored people, God has backed out on his promise? No, Paul says. You will see that in chapter 3. He says, God is always true. 
He is true in his character. He is true to his word, and he is true to his promise. Does that mean that Paul then says that the failings and that the unrighteousness of the Jews are good optics for God? Now we've been reading the papers, right? We're reading about good optics. So, is the Jews are the Jews' unrighteousness good optics for God? Which means that it it seems to project more of God's un, uh, more of God's righteousness. Paul says, no way, that cannot be, because God is a righteous God, and His righteousness is independent of the unrighteousness of people. Lastly, does Paul encourage evil so that the goodness of God is magnified, so that His forgiveness, His mercies, they take the spotlight? Paul says, well, if you think that way, your condemnation is just. And so the answer is no. No to God backing out on His promise. No to God needing unrighteousness to increase the optics of His being righteous. No to God wanting evil to make Him look good. No, the Jews are not on the same plane as the Gentiles. But yes, yes, they are still lumped together they are still on the same plane. Why? Because the Jews are no better off. Like the Gentiles, they are all under sin. So Paul declares in his gospel, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, let me read that. He says, as it is written, None is righteous, not, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under uh, their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so God's judgment looms even upon the God-favored, the Jews, because law and circumcision does not grant them immunity. It does not exempt them from God's judgment. Because the law's ultimate purpose is to make one aware of sin. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Are you still with me? We're almost done. <laughs> Paul tells us that the purpose of law is to show us that we are sinful. I mean, if you may, just imagine with me, if the laws of the land are suspended or nullified for the next 24 hours and you are free to do whatever you want, what comes to mind? Hmm? What comes to mind? What would you do? Certainly, you wouldn't just go to 7-Eleven and just grab all the Pokemon cards on the shelf. You'll do more horrific than that won't you? The law was given 
so that we become conscious of sin, so that we may know that we are accountable to God and that His wrath and judgment looms upon all of us. That is the bad news. Bad news that goes really deep, which is why we all need the gospel. We need to hear the good news that follows bad news. And the good news is this. Slide. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there you have it. Here is the good news. After we have truly understood the bad news. The good news is that the righteousness of God is given by His grace to all who believe in Jesus. Because we know that Jesus, God's Son, He came to obey the law fully. And He was the only one who consistently did good and sought God's glory, God's honor, and immortality. He obeyed God to death on the cross so that by His death our sins are paid for. And then His righteousness is now credited to us. We who believe in Him are now saved from God's wrath, no matter what kind of person you are. This gospel is for you. The gospel is a must. It is a necessity because only through Jesus can we be justified in God's sight. And so we all need the gospel no matter what kind of person you are because our sin deserves God's wrath and judgment. That's the bad news. And we praise God that the gospel is good news. What else does this passage tell us? I present a few for you. Firstly, if seeking God's glory, honor, and immortality is supposed to reward one eternal life, how then should we, who have eternal life because of Jesus, how then should we live? Hmm? We who now have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a very important question because some may think that having eternal life is in Jesus is obtaining a license to sin, like sort of an immunity, which is why in the latter chapters of Romans, Paul is going to correct that false teaching of a grace-propelled sin, grace-driven sin. That is because God abounds in grace, one can continue to live in sin. This kind of thinking, Paul says, misses the purpose of eternal life. Eternal life is living for God's glory. It is about seeking His honor and basking 
in immortality. So Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we who believe in the Lord Jesus, we are created in him for good works. And so if we have eternal life, the purpose of that is to do good and seek his glory, not our glory, his honor, not our honor, and to seek and to bask in the immortality, the unfading glory, and the lasting fellowship with God. We are saved for obedience, not for disobedience. And so ask yourself, do we seek God's glory, His honor, and unbroken relationship with Him? Secondly, beware of judging others without first judging yourselves. You know, we are always quick to spot sin in others, but then we are always blind to see the sin in us. We hasten to condemn others of pride, but then we fail to censor our self-pride. That is why Jesus calls on us to remove the log on our eyes before we even attempt to point out the speck in your fellow's eye. To subject others to your judgment without subjecting yourself it is called hypocrisy. And self-judgment is a helpful practice because by judging yourself, you will appreciate God's forbearance of you. And you will be reminded that God's forbearance, His kindness upon you, is designed to draw you to repentance, to run to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. Lastly, preach the gospel. First to yourself and then to others. First to yourself. Preach it again and again and then to others so that you may be reminded humbly of your place, which is you are a sinner saved by the grace of God, that you are an object of God's wrath, but now you have become objects of His mercy. That you are saved from sin to obedience. And then when you remind or, or you, you preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself of your place, then when you preach the good news to others, you will sound more convincing. And you will aim to be winsome in preaching the gospel. We all need the gospel because of God's wrath, because of the bad news. And the good news is, the righteousness of God is found in Jesus. Have you received this righteousness? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus? I pray that you do. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, your Son, died for us and that we who believe in him undeservedly obtain the righteousness that is credited upon us we are righteous in your sight not because of what we do but because of what Jesus has done on the cross in obedience to you we are recipients of your 
favor of your grace. And so teach us and empower us to live a life that seeks your glory, honor, and immortality, for this is what you have saved us, for what this is what you have purposed for us to do, that your name may be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.